0: Tonight's talk is a bit of a collage of topics that are of interest to me. (laughs) And I hope they'll be of some interest to you. And I want to start with a quote by John Lennon, which is only peripherally related to the talk. When I was five years old, My mother always told me that happiness was the key to life. When I went to school, they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wrote down, happy. They told me I didn't understand the assignment. (coughs) And I told them they didn't understand life. So tonight's talk a bit is a bit about <coughs> understanding life and perhaps happiness. And it builds a bit on Anushka's talk last night, which outlined the five aggregates. And that's a template that the Buddha gave very often. It's found frequently in the s- suttas and the discourses as a way of beginning to understand the notion of selflessness. Now, in the teachings, impermanence is easy to understand. Even if we have not fully actualized it in the way we live, it's not a difficult concept to grasp. And dukkha, is not hard to grasp we all have a very (coughs) immediate experience of it but the teachings on selflessness they are not intuitively obvious and it in a way goes against our common sense experience of things you could go up to anybody on the street and ask them whether things are impermanent or there are difficulties in life of course you go up and ask them, do you really exist? (laughs) That would raise some questions. So in talking about selflessness, the first and important thing to realize is that the self is not something that we need to get rid of. It really is not there in the first place, (coughs) and we are misperceiving our experience. So an example which I have been giving for the last (coughs) 42 years, some of you have probably heard it that many times, (laughs) is the example of the constellation, the Big Dipper. You all familiar (coughs) with the Big Dipper? clear night you look up at the sky (laughs) you see that constellation so what is this the sixth (coughs) sixth or seventh day of the retreat this is a little midterm exam is there really a big dipper up in the sky there's no big dipper sorry (laughs) there are some points of light which we take to be stars in a certain pattern. We see the pattern in a certain way. You know, we give it the name Big Dipper. But when you realize that there's no Big Dipper, does anything change in the sky? No, everything is as it always was. (coughs) We're just seeing it more clearly in the sense we're seeing it free of concepts and it's not to say that the concepts are not useful because if you happen to be in the middle of the pacific ocean navigating a canoe the big dipper points to the north star and you can navigate that way so concepts can be useful but it's important to realize that it is a concept So the self is not something we need to get rid of. It's not there in the first place. Self is like Big Dipper. The real question (coughs) and source of investigation is how the sense of self is created in the first place. (coughs) What are we doing in our experience that gives rise to the feeling of or the sense of self? (coughs) which we all have, and we live in that realm. So over these last days, we've been talking a lot, and I think you've experienced very often, that as experience unfolds, we have the tendency at different times, and often frequently, to identify with what's arising as being I, as being self. And it's that mental process of identifying with that creates that felt sense of self. So my body, or I'm feeling these sensations, my thought, my emotions. I mentioned the other night the famous Burmese monk, Lady Sayadaw. And at one point in his writings, (coughs) He listed, it was a long list of very common experiences, all of which he called wrong view. So what was on the list? I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm excited, I'm enthusiastic, I'm bored, and on and on. So this is just the normal way we experience things. What's wrong view? The I. Claiming these emotions as being self, as being I. Rather than seeing the experience, as anger angers, and fear fears, and love loves, each quality is expressing its own nature. None of them belong to anyone. So you might have seen over these last days and gotten a glimpse that, yes, sensations come and go and I can sometimes be with them and not personalize them. And perhaps you've seen thoughts arising and passing away and beginning to get a sense that they're coming from the person behind you <laughs> and, and they're not really yours. And perhaps you've had a sense with different emotions you know, that you see how they arise out of conditions and pass away and perhaps get a sense of the selflessness of them. But the hardest place to understand selflessness, to deconstruct that sense of I, is in our relationship to consciousness, to knowing. Because even as we see all of these other experiences arising and passing, and perhaps getting a glimpse of the non-self aspect, still there's this strong feeling, I'm the one knowing it all. And and so we create that sense of the observer or the witness. And that's, that's where the I resides. And you could think of consciousness or awareness or knowing as the last hideout of self. Now that's, that's the most difficult place to see clearly without identifying with it. So tonight I'd like to talk <coughs> about four different ways of working with knowing, working with consciousness, with awareness, in ways that could help us understand it without taking it to be I, without identifying with it. And these different ways come from different traditions. Different Buddhist traditions have different methodologies for understanding this. So the first one is a very classical teaching in the Theravada tradition. And it's the understanding that in every moment two things are happening. There's knowing and an object arising simultaneously. So what is hearing? There's knowing of a sound. What is seeing? Knowing of a sight, knowing of a smell, a taste, knowing of a sensation, knowing of a thought. And our experience, and this is one of the insights that happen in the course of Vipassana, unfolding, our experience is this pairwise progression of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. Now it's important to s- to understand that the knowing and the object are distinct but not separable. So they're two different things. So this is a rather uh, strange example, but if you lifted the arm of a corpse, if it could still move, the movement would be there, the physical, the physical sense of movement would be there. But is there any knowing? As far as we can tell, not. You know, a corpse doesn't know anything. And yet the physical movement is there. So, when we move our arms, There's the same movement, but something else is there as well, which is the knowing of the movement. So far, so good? (laughs) Just knowing an object. So it's arising simultaneously. You can't separate it, but it's two distinct phenomena. So it's kind of like, when you look at this, this has both color and form. But are color and form the same thing? No. They're two distinct aspects, but you can't separate. The color is always in a form, and the form has a color. So they're two inseparable, but distinct aspects. This mind-body, this process of knowing an object is like that. They're arising simultaneously. We can't separate them, but they are distinguishable. And so when you're sitting or walking, you might give emphasis to really seeing and examining, or just recognizing that in any moment, this is what's happening. There's a knowing and an object. Knowing and an object. You're taking a step, there's the movement and the knowing of it. Taking a breath, there's the sensations and the knowing of them. As the mindfulness gets stronger, we begin to see with greater and greater clarity this process, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, object, very quickly arising and passing. This is a very uh, important stage in the progress of insight because it is the first real glimpse of selflessness. We see that all that there is, is this progression of knowing an object, knowing an object. It's not that it's happening to someone. What we are is this process of knowing an object, arising and passing, arising, passing, arising, passing. And so it gives a real taste of the selflessness of consciousness because we see that it's actually arising and passing in each moment. So this is one way into (coughs) beginning our understanding of not being identified with knowing, not creating a knower. Okay, so that's one avenue in. Another avenue is to see the constructed nature of consciousness, that knowing or consciousness arises out of causes. And the Buddha laid out pretty clearly what the causes were for consciousness to arise. So I first kind of explored this particular aspect. I I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge in Barry And I was in the dining room, I was eating, (coughs) and I made a little thought experiment. And I just, this is a little sidebar. Even though we encourage you not to get lost in thought, (laughs) it's not to say that thought cannot be a very useful tool of reflection and investigation. And some years ago I read the biography of Einstein and i mean it's quite amazing his brilliant understanding of the nature of the universe all thought experiments right he wasn't he wasn't an experimental physicist it was this amazingly creative and intuitive understanding that came through a thought experiment So my own thought experiment in the dining room of the Forest Refuge does not quite rise to the level of Einstein, but it rises to the level of Goldstein. (laughs) It was a mistake to start with John Lennon. (laughs) Okay, so taste consciousness. You know, eating just watching, and just, uh, just the process of eating, I don't know whether you've uh, really paid attention, but it's amazing what the tongue does. It is the strangest organ. <laughs> it's like this, this thing in the mouth. <laughs> I've been told, I'm not sure this is true, that the tongue is the strongest muscle in the body. Anyway, <laughs> but it's a very, <laughs> it's a very uh, effective... So how does taste consciousness arise? The Buddha explained it arises when four conditions are present. Right? We need the tongue, we need food on the tongue, we need some moisture, saliva, and we need attention. If those four conditions are there, taste consciousness will arise. So I just did a little, my little thought experiment was knowing that I was just eating and just imagined whether the taste would arise if there were no tongue. <laughs> Obviously not. Or if there were no attention. Or if there were no, if I took any one of those conditions away, taste consciousness wouldn't be there. And we can do this with all of the sense doors. How does seeing consciousness arise? We have the working organ of the eyes, we have something coming in front, there's light, and attention. If those four conditions are there, seeing consciousness will arise. Take any one of those conditions away, we don't see. And I often do this when I'm, when I'm walking or going for a walk. I'll just play at the different sense doors, you know, using this little thought experiment, taking one of the causal conditions away And it becomes so clear, it's like a moment pop or something, of realizing that consciousness, the knowing, is itself conditioned. It's conditioned by these causes. And take any cause, any one of those causes away, the consciousness is not there. So that's another way of understanding the not self nature of it. There's no I in that mix. It's just causes. Causes come together. Consciousness arises. So that's the second way we can begin to experiment. You know, and, st- and really look for ourselves, investigate for ourselves. So the third way, and this now is moving into the teachings of another tradition. It's more <coughs> in some of the Zen traditions and Tibetan traditions. where the suggestion for investigation is to look for the mind, to look for the knowing, to look for the awareness, and see if you can find it. There's a very famous uh, Zen um, dialogue, actually from China, Chan. Um, Bodhidharma brought Buddhism from India to China, and he was you know, reputedly this very fierce guy sitting in a cave for nine years and and somebody came, this seeker came to him and I'm not sure I'm gonna pronounce it correctly but his name was Huike. H-u-i-k-e and Huike was in great distress and at first Bodhidharma was just ignoring him and as this rather weird legend goes, he cut off his arm to show his sincerity. <laughs> so Bodhidharma agreed to come out of his cave. <laughs> 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 We're much easier. <laughs> 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 and Waker says, You know, Venerable Sir, I'm in such distress. I'm suffering so much. Please pacify my mind. Now before I proceed, the dialogue goes back and forth a couple of times and the end it sounds like uh, a little witticism and so people often just take it on that level, but it's actually a profound truth, so try to hear it in that way. So Vika is saying to Bodhidharma, I'm in such distress, I'm in such suffering, please pacify my mind. Bodhidharma says, show me your mind and I'll pacify it. Hueka says, I've looked for it everywhere and I can't find it. And Bodhidharma says, there, I've pacified it. You know, That is a very direct pointing. It's like when we look for the mind, there's nothing to find. When we look for the knowing, it can't be found. When you look for awareness, you can't find it, and yet the knowing is there. So in some traditions, you know that they refer to that non-findability as an experience of emptiness. And different traditions use that term emptiness in different ways. But it's very interesting. It's When you're sitting, enjoy doing this a lot with sound, you know, so if, if I'm sitting and sounds are just arising, sometimes I'll ask myself the question, can I find what's knowing the sound? I know I'm knowing it because I'm hearing, but then when I look to see, can I find what it is that's knowing there's nothing to find, even though the knowing is there. So again when we begin to experience the non-findability of awareness, of knowing, that's another doorway into understanding its selfless nature. There's nothing there to find, even as knowing happens. So that's the third way to look for the mind. The fourth way is something that uh, just came to me quite a few years ago in my practice and it really transformed my practice. It was, it was just a turn it was actually a turn of language and how I was languaging things to myself. So there's An interesting quote uh, by Wittgenstein, he said, the sense of a separate self is only a shadow cast by grammar. How we language things conditions how we experience things. But we are so immersed in our language from, from very early on that we don't even see how the language <coughs> that we use is conditioning our perception. So the big, the big turn for me came, and I don't know what gave rise to the thought, but usually we language our experience in the active voice. You know, I'm seeing, I'm hearing, I'm doing this, I'm going there. So there's a subject, you know, and a verb, and an object. So I started reframing, relanguaging things in the passive voice. So, for example, in walking, <laughs> sensations being known, not I'm knowing the sensations. Right? So in the movement, just sensations are being known. In relanguaging it that way to myself, and actually practicing that framework, there were some quite remarkable consequences. One is that the things, are, everything, is being known completely effortlessly. Just as a little experiment, if you move your arm with that frame, so just you could say, the movement or sensations being known. Aren't they being known just as you're moving? And you can move fast, you can dance, or you can move really slowly. And they're just being known. All by itself, completely effortless. And not only is it effortless, begin to see that Experience is being known exactly in the moment of its arising. The knowing doesn't lag. It's not ahead. It's precisely as it's happening, it's being known. And no one's doing anything. So there's this effortlessness. There's this precision. There's an exactitude to it. So I would experiment with this a little bit, if you're interested. To just, both in the sitting, you know, the sensations of the breath being known. It was very easy in the walking, because the movement is so obvious. And just being known. And if you get to a place... And this is not difficult, but if you get to the place where it's just happening really easily for you, you know that's just the language construct that is there through which you're experiencing things—just things being known, moment after moment, a movement of sound, a thought, things being known. If you practice just a little bit and you f- find it easeful, then you could ask a very telling question things are being known, known by what? Right? And so it's turning the attention back towards the knowing and again we find the same thing as Weka, known by what? There's nothing to find and yet the knowing is there. So this is the great mystery of awareness, the great mystery of consciousness. This passive voice construction and practicing in that way can give a very immediate sense of the selflessness of the whole process, the selflessness of knowing, no one's doing anything. The great uh, contribution of the passive voice, which is generally unacknowledged in society at large, is that there's no subject. It takes the subject out of the picture. And so we're just in this experience of things being known moment after moment, being known effortlessly, no one's there. and Some people might call that a non-dual awareness, or selfless, selfless awareness because there's no subject, there's no I in that experience. So that's another way you can begin to explore this. Okay, just a quick recap. Four different approaches to beginning to explore the selflessness of consciousness, the selflessness of awareness. One is that insight into the fact that this process is just a sequence, a pairwise progression, moment after moment, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, and you can really be with your experience in that way. Notice this. This is how it's happening. So you don't have to create it. It's just to notice that in every moment that's what's happening. And that's all that's happening. And that it's not happening to someone. What we are is that process. Knowing an object, knowing an object. Causes and conditions. To see how consciousness arises because of different causes. And you can check that out. As you know, I mentioned in different examples. You might... Play the role or the little dialogue in your mind of Bodhidharma and Waka, you know, and sometimes I'll use that that dialogue if I'm going along and my mind is disturbed by something or you know just caught up in something, and being very familiar with that whole dialogue of you know I'm suffering and please pacify my mind, show me your mind, nothing to find already pacified so i've just use the shorthand, when I'm right in the middle of something, I'll just say to myself, already pacified. You know, and it reminds me that, look for the mind, there's nothing to find. In that nothing to find, there's no problem. And just a little phrase that a Sri Lankan monk once used, he said, no self, no problem. You know, and We can drop into that space, even if it's just for a few moments at a time. So already pacified. And then the fourth is that practice of reframing your experience as you're going along in that passive voice, of just different things being known. I would highly recommend, particularly this last one, because Once you settle into that frame the practice becomes so effortless. We've taken the I out of the whole process, the I which is struggling to be mindful and struggling in whatever way you struggle. It's just things are being known moment after moment. So there's a great lightness and ease in that way of practice. Okay, second, second part of the collage. This first one had to do with how not, or practicing, investigating, not identifying with consciousness, seeing the selfless nature of awareness. <coughs> the second topic of interest actually arose <coughs> just in my last retreat. You know, Over the winter I was sitting for about six weeks And a line of the teachings came to mind, which I mentioned in the earlier talk. And this is a line that you find often in the suttas when somebody got enlightened, they would often express their enlightenment with the phrase, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Remember I talked about that in the impermanence talk. So this line... Find it very often. So I was sitting, and it came to mind. And usually I would read that line simply as a description. You know, people describing the nature. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Yeah, got that. But in this particular sitting, I took that line more as an instruction. And so, right in the sitting. And I was just there sitting in the flow of experience. You know, different sensations and sounds and thoughts, just all the experiences of our practice. I was there in the flow of it. And I dropped this sentence right in the middle. Whatever has the nature to arise, it will also pass away. And something quite unexpected happened. What is the implication of that sentence? Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. When I dropped it right into the middle of my practice, it became crystal clear that there is nothing to want because whatever I might want will also pass away. And in the context of meditation there's a phenomenon that is very common probably most of you are practicing in this way and certainly I've seen it in myself very very often being in the flow of experience but with a slight leaning into the next moment it's like we're with the breath in order for the next breath or we're with a sensation in order for it to unfold in a certain way or we're with an emotion for something that there's what i call the in order to mind we're with this in order for something so it's. It can be very subtle. It can be the subtlest energetic leaning into the process. And the Buddha called this in the second noble truth. We talked about the cause of suffering which is craving. The first kind of craving we're very familiar with is just the craving for sense pleasures, but the second is more subtle and more pervasive. He called it craving for becoming. So there's there's a wanting something to happen. This is leading someplace. When I drop this line in, it's whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away, it's like there is nothing to become. Because whatever it is will also pass away. And so for that moment, the mind just, stopped that forward lean. It was And the Four Noble Truths in that moment became so clarified, it became so clear that this craving for becoming, even on a moment-to-moment level, is what keeps us on this whole whirlwind of samsara. It's like we're craving the next moment and the next moment and the next moment. And it illuminated the essence of the practice. And this is... If you get this, you've got everything. (laughs) (laughs) The essence of the practice is not becoming anything. It's not having... Some new meditative experience it 's not because whatever has the nature to arise is also pass, will also pass away. The essence of the practice is in not craving anything it 's that dropping back into not wanting so this was this was a very kind of surprising i was, I had no idea that this would come just from dropping that phrase into my mind. So you might want to experiment with that. Do you have that sense of, as you practice, how often there's a leaning, just a we're with this in order for something. You know, and that's we think that's what the meditation is about. You know, to become something. But the freedom isn't exactly the opposite. The freedom is in not becoming, not craving. So that, that we can do any time. You can touch the deepest aspects of the practice in any moment when you realize that it's it's this. <laughs> this is the move, not that. So you might, you might experiment with that, and just see, you know, if it's useful for you. Okay, that's the second part of the collage. <laughs> right, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away, and really using the implications of that very profound statement. It's not just a throwaway line. It's pointing to the very essence of the practice. The third aspect uh, came from reading a series of talks by a Sri Lankan monk named Jnanananda. And he's a very revered monk in Sri Lanka, deeply, deeply immersed in the suttas and the texts, knows them perfectly, and very accomplished in his practice. So he gave a series of lectures, I think it was I don't know, something like thirty six or thirty seven lectures on Nibbana. So I thought, oh, this will be interesting. It was a mind stretch. You can Google, you can go to Ajahn Google, <laughs> Nyanananda, Nanda, and they're all online. It's amazing. You, you, know, you want 37 lectures on Nirvana? There, there they are. They are a mind stretch. I mean, t- he was talking about the Dharma in ways that were so... Uh, unusual and so subtle, I really needed to be reading it uh, when I was in a very quiet practice space to let the words, to try and really understand them. But in all of those lectures, there's one image he used uh, which I found very useful in my practice and that's what I want to mention this evening. So he used the image of a river flowing to the ocean. And you could think of that as uh, the stream leading to Nibbana. So we're in the stream. So what is this river? What is this stream? That's when we are in the flow of impermanence. Right? When we're just, you know, we're just in our experience and in that flow of things arising and passing, arising and passing and just going along you know, and there are no obstructions. So we're in the flow, we're in the current. And in fact, that is the current leading to Nibbana. Right? And then he used the example, if the current of the water hits an obstacle, like a rock or something, So what will happen as it goes over the rock, you know, it creates a little vortex and sometimes an eddy, you know, where the current goes in the opposite direction to the main flow. And he used this example of the vortex and the eddy. At those times in the flow, when we're in the flow of impermanence, but then we get caught by something creating the sense of self you know and we're no longer in the flow but then we're in the eddy you know going around and around in whatever our little story or fixation or attachment is until at a certain point you know we we come out of the eddy and are back in the flow of impermanence so just as a as a kind of example of this uh, years ago, I was on a uh, whitewater rafting trip up in—I uh, can't remember. I think it was the Snake River, up in up in Idaho. Um, and along with the main rafts, the, the you know the guides had these little flimsy uh, rubber kayaks, you know that people could go in individually. Uh, and just to kind of play in the river. So I thought, oh, that looks like fun. So I get into one and I'm kind of paddling. And then the guy shouts out to me, watch out for the hole in the river. I had no idea what he was talking about. (laughs) I mean, I'm from central Mass. (laughs) (laughs) Hole in, it didn't mean anything to me until a few moments later. (laughs) Because the, vo- the, the water current was going over something and into the vortex. <laughs> so I got and I'm really pulled down. I'm pulled down under the water. Fortunately, I was wearing a life vest, you know, and kind of that popped me back up. But the, that vortex was so straight, it pulled me down again. you know. And then again, the life jacket popped me up and then back in the stream. So in our practice... When we get caught, whether it's in the vortex or in eddy, mindfulness is like that life jacket. Mindfulness is the life vest. So when we get caught and we remember to be mindful, we disidentify with whatever it is that's arising and back in the flow of the current towards Nibbana. So I found it very interesting both in the sitting in the walking just and in moving about to watch for that change of experience you know to just be paying attention okay we're in the flow and everything is going along smoothly and then something happens and we're no longer in that forward moving current maybe we're lost in some thought you know, some story, or caught up in some reaction, or even I noticed that. so I could be going along, and then if... I have to do something. You know, I have a task to do. Just that would often prompt the fall into the vortex. You know, oh, I have a purpose now. You know, and doing something, and it's so easy in that moment. And you might notice this, you know, maybe when you're in your room, you know, and you're doing different things, or in the work retreat, in the work, you know, your job. Do you keep that f- sense of the forward flow, of just the flow of impermanence through all those activities? Or do things get solidified, in the of oh, okay? There's a self here, and I have to do something. Right? So it's just, it, it becomes very interesting to watch the alternation of being in the forward current, and then caught in an eddy of self, or whirlpool of self, and then at a certain point recognizing that, and then back in the current again. It became a very uh, visceral way, a visceral feedback for when I was caught, you know. And so you might, if it's of interest, just play, uh, play with that. Okay, this is the last of the, the last of the collage. Have you had the experience sometimes of waking up in the morning and then just for a few moments or a couple of minutes dropping back to sleep again, you know, a quick little dream in that space, and then again, you know, waking up and being awake. Is is that familiar? Okay, I think that's you know fairly common. Except for really good yogis who pop up totally awake. So I was, I was having the not so good yogi experience of <laughs> dropping back to sleep in little dream. And so this was while I was on retreat. And then I was doing walking, walking meditation, and I began to notice just the quickly passing thoughts, you know, that came through, and they weren't—they um, weren't disturbing. They were really light. They were not a whole big story. It was just, you know, walking and, you know, a thought passes. And I realized that for the most part, I really was not paying attention to that phenomena because they were not disturbing. It didn't feel like they were pulling me out of the current. It was just like, shh. But when I looked more carefully at those kinds of thoughts, which happen innumerable times during the day, I realized that for those moments of being lost, it was exactly the same experience as be going back into the dream state after waking. It felt exactly the same thing. You know, you're awake and then you're asleep for a couple of moments with the little dream and then you're awake again. So going along, this thought comes through and even if it's quick, if we're not aware of it in that moment, it's as if we dropped into a momentary dream state. And then we're out and we're back with what's happening. And then I noticed something else about these thoughts. That mostly, or certainly a good many of them, were self-referential in some way. And not not. Particularly in a disturbing way or a big way, but maybe it was planning or, you know, just commenting on something. But many of the thoughts sort of had a sense of self in the content. And so then I realized that for all these times, you know, in walking and moving about the day with all these very many passing thoughts, many of which, you know, have some idea of self in them, I realized that I was dreaming myself into existence. I was dreaming the self into existence. And so I started using that phrase, you know, just throughout the day. Stop dreaming yourself into existence. (laughs) But what that takes, and again, I recommend this. This would really refine your practice a lot, not only here on retreat, but in our lives in the world. Give some attention. Really, really set the intention to keep an eye out for these quick thoughts that go by you know so whether it's in the sitting or the walking and it's really a fun game you know because they're happening frequently so it wakes us up frequently if we're actually paying attention to them and it becomes so clear that when we're lost in a thought we're in a dream. You know, it becomes, it becomes so clear through the observation of that process. Uh, so this is another suggestion for practice. Uh, and it's another way of understanding or tapping in to the experience of selflessness because so much of the sense of self comes in these dreamlike thoughts. We are dreaming the self into existence. And so in that sense, when we're paying attention to that, we are really waking up from the dream. So these were the topics of interest. <laughs> I'll just close, I think, with a little uh, reading from uh, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, who was one of the, the greatest of the Tibetan masters of the last century, uh, and his writings are just profound and clear and this brilliant teacher. He said, The idea of an enduring self has kept you wandering helplessly in the realms of samsara for countless past lifetimes. The idea of an enduring self. It is the very thing that now prevents you from liberating yourself and others from conditioned existence. If you could simply let go of that view of I, you would find it easy to be free and to free others too. Use any practice you do to dissolve this idea of I and the self-oriented motivations that accompany it. So that's really an important line there. As long as that sense of I, sense of self, is there and strong, so many of the motivations in our lives are rooted in that self-center. Use any practice you do to dissolve this idea of I and the self-oriented motivations that accompany it. And this last line is really applicable. Even if you do not succeed in the beginning, keep trying. So, you know, at one point at our center in Barry, the Inside Meditation Society, we received a letter addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. (laughs) You might reflect back on Kamala's great talk on patience. (laughs) This is a process, and so everything I talked about is an unfolding process of understanding. So Let's sit for just a few minutes.